well put together, like JT Tam, for instance. You know, you go, that guy's like a Boy Scout, you know what I mean? He's like a really good guy, he's got really good grades, he loves his wife really well, he's hardworking, he's disciplined, he's fit. I mean, he looks like the creed that the Boy Scouts actually, you know, he's, he is everything you'd want in a, in, a, in a person. So people will say, well, he's such a Boy Scout. And, and sometimes people mean that in a pejorative sense, that they're just like jealous of how good a person is. And, and so they, they really don't like the fact that that person has honor and they're thrifty and reverent. Uh, any of you were Boy Scouts? Any Boy Scouts in the room? Okay. No official Boy Scouts. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Ed, did you raise your hand? Hi. How are you? How far along the process did you get? Ed and I have a lot in common. I was in the Boy Scouts for two years rose to the rank of tenderfoot, which basically means you did just the barely enough to like let them hang around for a little while longer. I was just a troubled kid, always looking for opportunities to get in trouble. So a camping trip for me wasn't an opportunity to learn how to tie knots and make fires. It was an opportunity to tie people up and set things on fire. It was a very different sort of experience for a troubled youth, you know. And, and so I... Uh, I, I have had an interesting relationship with the Boy Scouts of America because I wasn't really a Boy Scout in any sense of the word, both uh, figuratively and metaphorically speaking. And as a youth pastor, what happened was as I started to work in youth ministry in Florida, we had all these really great kids who all were literally Boy Scouts, and they would rise to the level of Eagle Scout, and I would inevitably go to their ceremony. And just recently here in the area a young man who's a friend of our family asked me to come and I did the, the uh, prayer, the invocation at this Eagle Court of Honor where you honor the Boy Scouts. And the Boy Scouts are a great organization. They're, they're having their troubles these days though. And I, and I was reminded of that as I, you know, as I asked for God's blessing on their gathering. And, and if you're not familiar, the Boy Scouts of America are in a real quagmire. They are a multi-religious organization trying to be as firm about what they believe and think without any real appeal to an external code. They have their own code, but it tends to morph and it is continuously morphing as the cultural norms morph. Now, they've tried for five generations to keep it the same but what they are finding out the hard way is that in a, in a culture in which we live, a for those of you who are philosophical in nature, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, I'm sorry to sound like I think I know something. In a postmodern culture where we don't have certainty that this is real or this is real, where we are going to accept the possibility that we're wrong about a lot of stuff in a world that's pluralistic, where we have multiple people with multiple different kinds of worldviews all competing in the world of ideas and thought, it's very difficult to keep a group of people together across all of those perspectives because you don't have a, an agreed-upon source that says, this, these are the rules, one, two, three, four, five. You're constantly influenced by the changing norms of the culture for better or for worse, and I won't get into all this today, but there are times where it's a darn good thing that we are morphing and adjusting. You know, there are times where our perspectives on the world need to mature and, and where 
as theologians talk about the difference between special revelation, which is what we call scripture, and general revelation, and that is what we learn about God from the world around us, as we learn more about God just in our general revelation, it does inform our understanding of scripture. It does help us to get a broader picture of who God is and what it means. It's good for us to grow and and to learn and to understand. In fact, this entire passage today in Thessalonians is a call from the Apostle Paul to this young church that he planted to spur them towards a further growth in grace. And, And very specifically, he's talking about in the way we behave and in the way we act. And at no point does the rubber really hit the road in terms of what will guide our lives as much as when somebody says, you have to live this way. Let me say that again. You can play in a different way. You can pretend you really like Jesus. I know I've been there. You can go to church because it's kind of cool or because it's culturally acceptable. You find out whether or not you really are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, when you are told you cannot do this and you must decide whether or not that directive from the scriptures is going to be the rule for your life. Only in that moment do you discover, even if it's difficult, am I willing to submit my life to the directives of scripture? Now, while there are some things that we're gonna talk about, two very specific points I have for you today about what God wants us to do more and more, I feel compelled to start with this discussion about the authority of scripture because It's not only mentioned in the passage twice, it is actually the foundation upon which anybody around here does anything. What we have to offer you is the living Christ, Jesus alive, and what the scriptures say about what it means for us to live and enjoy him. Our faith is built on what the prophets say. And, and, I, and I take you to two verses in particular in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 2 of the passage that Matthew read earlier, this is what the Apostle Paul said. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I was mentioning to our home group that You ought to be frightened. You ought to run like the devil the other direction. You ought to seriously reject any teaching where somebody comes to you and says, I've got something from the Lord that's going to steer all of us. And if you don't agree with what I say, you are not rejecting man. You're rejecting God. So if anybody, a cult leader, a super spiritual Christian person ever says to you that they've received something that isn't just their sense of what God wants to do, but they've got something that's so profoundly from God that if you were to disagree with them, you'd actually be disagreeing with God, you know, that you need to run and you need to reject that and you need to have people hide from that. We understand that to be sort of crazy if you're rational in this world. What we need to embrace is that in the first century, that wasn't crazy. The apostles 
those who were the followers of Jesus who were given this gift akin to the Old Testament prophets who spoke and said, thus saith the Lord. They spoke with the authority of God to say, all people everywhere around the globe must take heed to what's being said here. Genesis, all the way through the book of Malachi and the Old Testament. And we believe in the New Testament that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, these writings that were given to us are given with the same authority. We would not allow somebody to come into our church and say, this is a word from the Lord. If you disagree with what I'm saying, you're disagreeing with God. But we do claim in this particular congregation and in our network of churches that this is the word of the Lord. In fact, for two, two millennium, the church has responded as we do here at Prism Church. When Matthew concludes reading the scriptures on Sunday morning, he says, this is the word of the Lord. And the people enthusiastically respond as you should. Thanks be to God. See, it's not a minor thing that Paul would make these references. And for those who wonder why we trust scripture, well, we trust the Old Testament largely because Jesus trusted it and said so. And, and we trust the New Testament because the apostles said, you know, the Lord told us that we're speaking by his authority. And if Jesus really is alive, then we can count on what they're saying. Our apostolic faith, if you will, the Christian history, and not just that, our creeds and the things that were part of the church for, you know, have been a part of the church for thousands of years is we are committed to a universal apostolic faith. That's what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which means a universal church that is founded on the prophetic word of the apostles. And this is where Paul is coming to you and to me, and he's going to say something to the Thessalonian churches. It's really important, but before he can say anything that's going to kind of sort of rock our world, we've got to come to some closure about whether or not we really want to hear it, or we really believe that what's coming from the mouth of the apostles is recorded in the scriptures is authoritative in our lives because as is the case with the Boy Scouts, as is the case in the shifting sands of our culture, if you're not committed to apostolic authority in scripture or prophetic Old Testament authority in scripture, then you, not to say that's easy to understand that, and, I, and I'll get to some of that today, but I'm saying if you're not at a base level saying, I believe this is God's word and this has every right to guide and direct my steps. As, as we say when we get around to doing membership at our church, which is a couple of steps away for us as a young congregation, we would say the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century had as one of its mantras the Latin phrase sola scriptura, which meant scripture alone will be that which determines what we believe and how we live. In our day and age, you don't even have to have that as your mantra and call yourself a Christian. Unfortunately, there are churches, denominations, uh, leaders calling themselves Christians that have no reverence for Scripture, that have absolutely sworn off any apostolic authority. And at this particular moment, I don't feel bad telling you that there was an experience just this past week on the 12th of May 
where Catherine Jefferts Scorey, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, very publicly taught that the Apostle Paul was wrong to cast a, 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 a demon out of a slave girl. She publicly stated, you can find this online, and now she is the head of the Episcopal Church, the presiding bishop, that Paul was wrong because he freed her from the spirit of divination, that he was not respecting her. So she criticized the Apostle Paul for casting a demon out of this person who was possessed by a demon, all because in her little intellectual framework, anything that smacks of uh, a prejudice against a group of people or anything that is not all-inclusive all the time is wrong. Her presuppositions about what, the, about what is right and wrong as determined by culture are coloring the way she interprets what the Apostle Paul was doing in Acts chapter 16. It's insane, but it's not just out in the culture. It's people that are calling themselves Christians. And for you and I, we have to come to the, the conclusion, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, are we really going to trust that the word of God has come through the Apostles? Matthew and I went to a conference a while back, and it was a great conference to attempt to encourage us to, to use art and to use different symbolism in worship as a means of helping people see God. One of the speakers, though, really threw me, and I, I was stunned that he was even allowed to speak at the conference because what he said was that there have been times in the church's history where we have been a people of the word, and then there are times of the, in the church's history where we've been a people of the symbol. And we are now in an era where people don't think in terms of cognition and, and the word. And so we need to begin to communicate the gospel, not using the scriptures, but in other ways. And that sounds nice and it sounds really progressive and cool. The problem with his analogy is, is that at the times that he spoke of in the nation of Israel, for instance, when they were captured by the Babylonians and living in Persia, estranged from the temple and estranged from the scriptures, the reason they had to live as believers in a symbolic world where they didn't have the word is because they disobeyed the word in the first place. It's because they ignored the word of God to start with, and that's how they ended up where they were. God has never given us a season where we don't live by this word. Jesus has said it himself when he was tempted. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by how? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. You and I can't live without the reality of God's word speaking to us. Now, as a, as a means of transition into our actual passage here today, not that I haven't given you snippets of verse 2 and verse 8, but it's important to recognize that in, the, in this context, you've got uh, Paul instructing us in a way that is extremely consistent with the dissection of God's law and God's word. Jesus, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, is asked the question, What's the most important commandment? And Jesus does something really fascinating in this passage. He says, you know, there are two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Most recognize now that what Jesus was merely doing was summarizing the law. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments that were given 
Interestingly enough, are given on two tablets. Four commandments were on one. Six tablets, six commandments were on the other. The first four commandments were given as directives on how to deal with and interact with God. And the second six of the Ten Commandments were given how we interact with each other. One was about the vertical. One was about the horizontal. And in this context, once again, consistent with much else in Scripture, the Apostle Paul shows you and I that there are two things we need to do, more and more. And so I want to look at that today. The first is this. God wants us to love him more and more through sanctified growth. This is one of the things the Apostle Paul is calling us to, a sanctified growth that demonstrates more and more love for God. In verse 1, finally, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. A couple things you need to recognize. One is the presumption in this passage that your brothers or sisters, the familial connection here, the, the part that says brothers, that, that is intentional. It's as if to say we are in the family of God. This is not about trying to get into the family of God. Because we are in the family of God, now we have to start asking questions about how we can please our heavenly father. What can we do? Pleasing God, doing what makes God happy, gives God joy, is one of the great opportunities we have as Christian believers. The flip side of that, though, is that grieving God is also something we have the potential to do. Maturity in Christ, friends, is not seeing what you can get away with. That's when you know you're really immature spiritually, when you're saying, what can I do? One of the questions I always got in youth ministry from kids who were very excited and developing sexually, how far is too far? That question right there is at the root of an immature thought process. You're saying, God's got rules, what can I get away with? He's saying as you mature as a believer in the family of God, as you mature as a child of God, you're not just saying, what can I get away with? You begin to think proactively, how can I please God? I, I was a teenager once. I know what it's like to try to fool my parents and get out from underneath their authority and do all sorts of things and hope I don't get caught. But as I've grown into a man now, I'm starting to ask questions, what can I do to make my mother happy? How can I make my mom happy? There was a time in my life where I very immaturely saw her as a bother and got in the way. And as I mature as a person, I'm now saying, how can I please her? This is very similar to life in the family of God. As the children of God, we have to say, are we willing, are we looking to please him? Now, there's this solemn warning that I really think it's important because I, by my confession to you all is, I'm one of those preachers that uh, loves to soften the commands of God because, you know, I want everybody to love each other. I want us to get along really well. And so sometimes I'm not one of those hard-edged preachers. I'm sort of out of the box for the network of churches we have because a lot of the guys love to be, you know, rough around the edges and really kind of revel in that prophetic gift where they go, the holiness of God, and everybody just trembles and the building shakes and, and you walk out and you're crying. 
that tends to not be my, my, my process, but I cannot rob you of a grace that God is giving to you to say in this passage, loving him is not something that's optional. Obedience to him is not something that he'll take or leave. Pleasing him is something he wants. Grieving him will produce a discipline in our lives. So, you know, I I could say I love you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to make you feel bad. I'm like Pastor Mercy here, but it's not very loving for me to steer you away from passages of Scripture where God is saying, if you do this, I'm going to be displeased and I'm going to discipline you. Read Hebrews 12 if you wonder whether or not God gets involved in disciplining us when we completely and otherwise ignore what he says in particular, what drives God in, this, in the midst of this solemn warning that is in these passages of Scripture is, according to verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passionate lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So you can understand, too, that it's loving for a father to discipline you if you are doing something to harm one of his other children. In my home, I only have two children, but I can tell you there are times where we have to deal with one child out of love for the other one. In this case, God is solemnly, and I love that it's a solemn warning. You don't get the idea that the Apostle Paul just loves being tough. I'm going to be rough here and mean. He's saying, no, I solemnly warn you. The power of God and the the vengeance of God will come against people who intentionally harm others because they're just so selfish. Jesus is calling us to a sanctified growth. And I want to pay attention to this word sanctified for a second. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the last section that we'll get to next week of this first epistle to the Thessalonians the blessing is that God would sanctify us completely. We are encouraged in this passage two different times to do things more and more. So a little insight for you, for those of you who have ever been curious about how pastors put together sermons. In other words, how do we know where to go? How do we know how to arrange these things? In this passage, there are two different places where the phrase, I urge you to do this more and more, is used. This more and more is connected to this process of sanctification. We are being made holy. The the word sanctified in a theological sense means that things are used for the purpose God intends. A human being is sanctified when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. The Greek word translated sanctification is a word called hagiasmos, which sounds a lot like holiness when you say it out loud. And it means that you are progressively being made holy. You're set apart for holy use. When Roman Catholics use sanctified objects of worship, which we don't use in our Protestant worship, but they will set aside objects of worship that they consider to be holy and used for worship. And you see this in the Old Testament for sure. You see the priests setting aside certain object by God's decree that they would be things used to facilitate the worship of God. We are now referred to as this 
that we are sanctified, we are set apart to be used of God. God's purpose in sanctifying us is that he would be glorified, but additionally, that you and I would be used to direct others in worship. So we can actually see ourselves in part as objects that help others to worship God. In the context here, he, he you know, picks on or addresses a specific issue about the rampant sexual lust that was in the church, apparently at Thessalonica, but certainly all over the Greco-Roman world, as it is in our world. The determining factor amongst people who were pagans had no belief in God or had nominal belief in things eternal and certainly didn't believe in a resurrected Jesus was that your desires are uncontrollable. You can't do anything about that. The feelings you're born with, the desires you're born with, they are what they are and you've got to run with them. And to countermand or to decide that you're going to bring under the discipline of the scriptures or God your behavior, you know, to do that is just silly. Who would do such a thing? (laughs) And that's where the Christians kind of stood out because they were being told, no, we were designed to work a certain way We were designed to live a certain way. The fall of man, the sin that entered the world, kind of corrupted that original vision that God had for how we would live. And now, as members of his family, we're part of a restoration project where more and more we are bringing ourselves to a place of saying, we're going to trust God and by his grace live in ways that please him. And in the culture that is our culture, lust and sexuality and sexual identity, all these things are primary and right in our face 24 hours a day. And the argument is, if God made me this way, isn't it okay for me to do this? There is a significant piece of that argument missing, which is God made us perfect and holy in his sight He initially created mankind in the garden to be unbroken and whole, but sin fractured this whole thing. It like like a beautiful vase that was busted into pieces. Now God is gluing us back together, and yes, as his created children, we have great value. But there is something that's part of our world right now, and that is the brokenness and the struggle. And so we can't just assume that every desire we have is from God. In fact, most of our natural desires run very counter to Scripture. And this is where we come back to what is going to be the rule of your faith and practice. Now, you can say, I'm going to go ahead and go with the changing norms of society. And that's your choice. This is America. right? But in the scriptural sense, what we're saying is the eternal word of the Lord the prophets, the apostles, what they said about what was right and holy and pure and what would please God, these are the things we're going to cling to. The Old Testament made it very clear. The first four commandments of the, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are designed to help us say, how can we live to please God? Well, we're not supposed to have anything in our lives that's more important to him. You shall have no other gods before me. We're also not supposed to worship anything that's false. So getting involved in anything that's funky or weird according to scripture, that would displease God. 
We shouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth commandment, which so many of us need to really take to heart, and that is that we've been told to, to set aside the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is not optional for us. One of the ways we love God is to worship him. And one of the ways we love God is to find a church community that we can be a part of where we say we're going to gather on Sundays come hell or high water. Unless I'm vomiting and I'm going to get everybody else sick, I'm coming to worship God. I am going to worship the Lord. Why? Because it'll make him like me more? No. Because it'll make him accept me and I'll be granted entrance into his family? No. Because it pleases him. It pleases him. You have the opportunity to bring joy to your father. That's how you show him that you love him. Jesus said this in John 14, 18 through 21. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the father and you in me and I in you. And here's the part I think we need to heed solemnly. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You know, when you and I want to discover what it means to love somebody, when you're in love with somebody, it's an amazing investigative process. Now, Carol and I have been married coming up 23 years this July, and we love each other on levels that are deeper and richer than I ever imagined possible. But after 23 years, you really have to work to discover what it is that I got to do to make this person happy. You get in such a rut and such a groove that you just don't really think about it. When you're first dating, you just can't wait to leave them notes or figure out ways that will make them let them know you love them. And I, and I don't want to always draw parallels between our human relationships and our relationship with God, but I think one of the things that we've just got to be careful to not do has fallen to a rut with God where we forget that we can actually bring joy to his heart. We're called. Paul is commanding us. He's solemnly directing us, love God more and more through sanctified growth. Second thing Paul would encourage us to do more and more is to love others more and more through sacrificial giving. And verse eight says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. It's fascinating because Paul is actually complimenting them. He's saying, you know, you're doing a great job. And I have this luxury right now of saying, you know, we're a little church and it's great, but I think you guys are doing a great job of caring for each other. I'm very excited about what I see the Lord doing in terms of just us loving each other. And for me, that's, that's really what Christian community is supposed to be about, about genuinely being in each other's lives and caring for each other. So I too, with Paul, would say, that's great, but let's do so more and more. And there's some very important reasons why that's the case, not the least of which is that this is one of the practical ways, as I've mentioned in weeks past, this is one of the practical ways that we get to experience the living God the use of the word Philadelphia is important for us to recognize here. 
You say, what Philadelphia? I didn't see that. Brotherly love, the, uh, the Greek word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. It's one of three types, uh, I'm sorry, four types of love talked about in the New Testament. And this type of brotherly love, Philadelphia, brotherly love, it's why they call Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. The idea being that there is a way you care for people who are part of your family. There's a way you endure with people who are part of your family. There are things you do with your brothers and sisters. There are ways you care for them that are special and unique. Loving others means sacrificing for them. And the Thessalonian churches, it is thought of that they were particularly generous with other churches in their region financially. They were particularly faithful in enduring in prayer because they themselves had been suffering and and knew what it meant to have others praying for them. Thessalonica at one point, though, may have been generous to a fault. In verses 9 and 10, Paul praised them for their brotherly love and encouraged them to do it more and more. But in verses 11 and 12, he commands a good number of them to get back to work. And as we'll get to next week, because I get the privilege of talking about the end times and eschatology and 1 Thessalonians 5, some of them were so, you know, as the, as the saying goes, they were, they were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. They had their thoughts and their, they thought Jesus was coming back real soon. And so they basically didn't go to work and they ended up being somewhat idle. And as anybody knows, when Christians are idle and they're not busy doing what God's called them to do, they start turning on each other. It gets really weird. And so this was not a good thing. Some of them were taking advantage of the generosity of the church, saying, you know, the church will take care of me. And they had become a burden to other believers. In Paul's message, he says, one concrete way to demonstrate our love is to be, is to not be, a burden to others. And, and he commanded the Thessalonians to engage in meaningful labor and daily work. I, I love verse 11 and 12. We hear so little of this, that as Christians, we're to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands so that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Our mission as a church is in three parts. One is to see believers revived and how excited they are about God's love for them. The second would be that we would reach friends, that we would have relationships with people who need to know the love of God and that we would help them see that and that collectively we would be involved in renewing culture. The part of our ministry that involves reaching friends is not going to happen if your friends don't listen to anything you say because your life is a distraction to them. And one of the ways that that can be the case is to be somebody who's idle with their time and somebody who basically spends their time criticizing others or critiquing or thinking about things but not really doing things to demonstrate that you're living a quiet life to love God and to serve people well. We're encouraged, we're challenged, we're exhorted here from the scriptures that this is going to win if we will faithfully love people, if we will work hard with our hands, if we will care for people and serve others that this will win the respect of outsiders. That it isn't just about you and I telling them about Jesus. And I'm, we're praying we're in the midst of this by name campaign and we're gonna continue as long as I'm the pastor at Prism Church. 
encouraging you to pray for opportunities to tell your friends and family about Jesus and to make friends who don't know Jesus. But that said, there's something you and I can do today, which is simply loving him well, loving God well by serving others well and loving others well by just simply doing the things God's called us to do faithfully. We're admonished to live a quiet life, which means our neighbors ought to see the quality of our lives. And uh, in the future, we'll get to how important it is for the elders of our church to have the respect of outsiders and relationships with outsiders. First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, the apostle John writes this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we're called as the children of God. We're called as the family of God to do more than just use idle talk about how we care for people. But it is presumed, as is always the case, that Jesus has done this for us. I love this passage, and John, consistent with so many other passages in Scripture, says, you know, if he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for others. The presumption being that if you've never experienced the joy of him laying down his life for you, if the reality of the gospel isn't penetrating every area of our hearts, we aren't going to be people who are enthusiastically and, and passionately loving and caring for others so that they can see us. And as we are sanctified in that, as we are made holy, as God glorifies himself in the way we, we live and, and, and work, as God does this, then other people are led to worship him more and more. I, I uh, am by nature, as I think many are, selfish and I like my stuff. And it's been easier as I've gotten older to part with it because um, I don't have that much of it. But at the same time, it's just I've started to realize that the things that we can collect in this world have a shelf life. They're exciting for a little while. Uh, we had a car blow up last fall. I got a new used car. I was very excited for it. About two months later, it just smelled like a used car. You know, I, 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 uh, I will buy new things, and for some of you, you have a shopaholism that's pretty intense, and, you, and you'll walk through a mall just looking for stuff. For me, it's Walmart. I'll walk through Walmart and just see things and go, I need that. And I have no idea whether or not I really needed it. I didn't know I needed it until I walked into Walmart, but it was sitting there, and it made me think, you know, that would make me happy. And so what happens is, is I begin to, you know, by nature, say, I'm going to find my joy in this stuff. Well, when the stuff becomes mine, it's very difficult to give it away. But I think about things, and I think, what if we had the perspective that our stuff was God's? What if everything in your life, your home, your car, your job, your clothes, your recreational things, what if they were God's? And here's a side note, they are. But let's assume in our mind and thinking that we really believe that. Well, when it comes time to give stuff away, it's a whole lot easier to give other people's stuff away. I have a lot of fun giving other people's stuff away. It's a real joy. 
It's giving my own stuff away that's no fun. And I think part of our problem is, is that we've just collected and trapped our stuff in our grip. And it was Corey Tinboom who said, she had to hold the things that God had given to her in an open hand because she so disliked the process of him prying back her fingers. Max Lucado is a wonderful author, and I don't have this for the screen, so you're just going to have to listen, but he said something I'd like us to take to heart in closing today. If the Father in heaven is not only with us but in us, if he never abandons us, if he listens to us and cares about us and wants only the best for us, then all things are possible. We no longer have to scramble around trying to make life work. We can relax. We can go off duty. We can let go of the draining, joy-depleting habit of looking out for number one. Even better than that, when we are convinced that the Father is absolutely for us, we are freed up to focus all our attention and energy and efforts on living for Him by serving others. As surrendered servants, we can rest assured He will meet all our needs. Let us pray. Father, for today, uh, for the celebration of our brother JT's work for you and for us, for the time we'd spend in your word, that we would find...